Welcome, adventurers. Many tales of heroes and villains occur in plain sight for all to see. Others remain hidden, only known to a very few. Draw near and listen. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon Erwin made his way slowly to the hearth, reaching out shaky hands to take a log from the small pile and place it on the dwindling fire. He paused, gnarled hand on the mantle, making sure the log caught. When the fire's warmth began to expand out into the room again, its light pushing back some of the deep night, he shuffled back to his seat, a simple wooden chair placed alongside of a rustic pallet. He lowered himself with great effort back into the chair and pulled a rough wool blanket over his legs. Other than the crackles and pops of the renewed fire, the only other sound to be heard in the small one-room cottage was the shallow breathing of the cottage's owner, who laid in the pallet next to which Irwin sat. The owner's head could be seen above the blankets, which pressed his frail body into the straw mattress. Irwin stared directly at the worn quilt, which capped the blanket pile, his eyes searching to see the tiniest rise and fall of his friend's feeble breath. It had become increasingly more irregular since Sol had set. A rustle of movement, and the owner's eyes flicked open, his arm finding its way free of the blankets. Irwin, came a barely audible call, and then slightly louder, Irwin. Irwin leaned forward, reaching out to take the searching hand in his own. I am here, Byford. It is cold, Irwin. A long pause. I don't think I'm long for this world, Byford said, the vaguest hint of apology in his voice. I know, Byford, came Irwin's saddened reply. But I am here, and I will stay with you until the end. Frayne! Frayne turned his head to see Sarkeesian swing up into her saddle. She spurred the large dapple gray horse which surged two steps toward Frayne before she roughly reined the horse to a stop, looming over him. Sarkeesian stared down at him, an unreadable expression on her weathered face. Mount up, Frayne. There is nothing more we can do for him now. Brother Verison is in Gorion's hands. We must follow without delay. We cannot let Mardukal make his escape. Frayne swung his head back to gaze down at Verison, whose lifeless body he cradled, blank gray eyes staring unfocused into the twilight. Jagged claw marks crossed his chest, chainmail shirt torn as if it was nothing more than cloth. Verison had joined the order two years after Frayne. He had been quiet, but confident and sure of his faith. Frayne always envied his unquestioning faith in Gorion. Frayne, despite all his prayer and his five years in the order, never felt as though he had made a true connection with Gorion. 
Sarkeesian always told him that the magic he had learned and healing he had performed was all the evidence he needed, that Gorion was with him, but sometimes he believed that he accomplished these feats by force of will, through true commitment to the ideals of justice and the defense of the helpless, more than the favor of his god. Why didn't you protect him? A flare of anger welling up. Frayne, came the stern voice of Sarkeesian. We will mourn them all when there is time. If we do not maintain pursuit, Marco may escape, and then many, many more will die. We cannot allow this abomination to continue. Frayne held his hand over Ferrison's eyes and looked up into the sky. Gorion, welcome my brother into your hall, he whispered. He was better than I. He laid Verison down onto the rough green grass, crossed his hands over his chest, and kissed him on the forehead. Frayne, now! came Sarkeesian's diminishing call, accompanied by the sound of fading hoofbeats. They had been eight when they set out in the overcast early morning. The plan had been to arrive at the abbey well before sunset and find Mardikal's resting place before he could wake. But little had gone right, and now they were four, though Sister Sarathi was looking more and more pale as they rode. Mother Sarkeesian had laid hands on her after the ambush, but the strain of riding hard in pursuit seemed to be taking its toll on her. Sarkeesian had assumed they had the element of surprise upon their departure, but all that had happened since showed that this was not the case. Not only did Mardukal know of their coming, but he had made plans of his own to befuddle their attempt to catch him sleeping. Just after turning onto the small road that led to Daggermount, Brother Verison and Sister Damel had fallen into a cleverly laid pit trap in the center of the road. They had escaped relatively unharmed, but Verison's horse died immediately, and Damel's horse had broken both of its front legs, and they were forced to put it down. After that, they were eight persons with six horses and had to progress much slower, being ever weary of traps. Even proceeding with caution, Sister Damel was caught in a snare trap while scouting a deeply shadowed portion of the trail, and her leg was badly broken. Against many protests, she was sent back with a horse to report on the difficulties they faced and to receive healing at the Citadel. Mother Sarkeesian deemed it necessary for all to conserve as much power as possible to fight the devious Mardukal. As they drew nearer the village of Daggermount, the forest began to show signs of wither and rot, the deep greens of the trees turning into sickly grays and browns. Shadowy figures were spotted moving amongst the dying trees, mirroring the party's movement. At a narrow point in the trail, the forest itself attacked. An animated mass of shrubs, vines, and needles converged on the slowly moving party who found themselves fighting off the advance of a horde of blights, hacking at grasping vines and lashing twigs and roots, all the while ducking behind shields as vile pine needles burst forth in cloud-like volleys. The group of paladins and clerics eventually beat back the woody onslaught. As a whole, they took very few wounds, but they were delayed even further, and they had to waste even more time recovering one of their precious horses, who had bolted in terror. And so it was when they finally came out of the forest, onto the highland moor, 
and reached the small village of Daggermount. Instead of the protective light of day, Sol had long since set, and the last vestiges of daylight were fading from the sky. There were no signs of life in the small village. The Waddle and Daw buildings were in disrepair, and thick layers of dust covered the windows, obscuring any view into the interior. There was no light of candle, lantern, or hearth to be seen. They passed through the village in a single-file line on a narrow, muddy road, heads swiveling to search for any evidence of life, for any sign of danger. Bats flitted above in a frenzy of feeding in the dusk. As they passed an open stable next to an inn that seemed to sag on its foundation, Frayne noticed a writhing motion in one of the stalls. He squinted, pulling his horse closer to the stall, hand dropping to his sword, and then paused, a shiver running down his back. The writhing was a mass of rats swarming over an unrecognizable mound, possibly the remains of a horse. And then in the same moment, as if given a command, all the rats stopped, lifted their heads, and turned to glare at Frayne, hundreds of red eyes locking onto his motion. Frayne quickly pulled his horse away from the stable, kicking it into a trot, turning his head to keep watch for signs of pursuit. In that moment came the scream of a panicked horse from ahead. Frayne's head snapped to the front, in time to see Brother Verison and Brother Dow jumping from the horse they had shared as it tumbled toward the ground, blood spurting from a jagged wound at its neck. Then a call from behind and the sound of drawn weapons. Two arms, came Mother Sarkeesian's call to action. Go, Ryan, protect us. Two arms. Frayne heard a strange noise, a choir of small squeaks. And then, as if someone had kicked a dying fire, spilling embers across the ground. Hundreds of red eyes poured out from the stable, turning in every direction, rushing towards Frayne and his allies. The ambush was well laid. More to call, two of his spawn and an untold number of rats had burst from various hiding places among the dilapidated structures and poured over Frayne and his allies. In a nightmarish blur of claws and teeth, a frantic engagement ensued that left brothers Dowd and Verison, as well as Sister Arafin, dead. Sister Serethi bled heavily from a savage wound in her side. She collapsed two steps after saying she was fine and didn't need any assistance, Mother Sarkeesian rushing to her side. They had defeated the spawn and scattered the rats, but the confrontation ended with Mardukal skittering up the side of a building to the roof. He stood a moment, staring down at them with a smile on his face. After smoothing his fine blue coat and arranging his long blonde hair back into a neat ponytail, he cheerfully called, Playtime has been fun. If you wish a more prominent display of my powers, you can join me at the Abbey this evening. If not, I have been growing restless of late. I think it is time for me to find another part of the world. Another culture, too consume. And then in a shimmer he was gone, a bat occupying the space where he stood but a moment before. A small flutter of wings and the bat was lost amongst the hundreds of others that fed in the night sky above the town. Frayne looked around the carnage until his eyes fell on the body of Brother Verison, ever faithful Verison.
It seemed as if Byford would settle back into a shallow slumber, eyes closing, breath beginning its shallow rhythm anew. But then his breath stopped after a moment, his lips curling into a subtle smile. Irwin leaned forward, awaiting the next breath, and then started as Byford spoke, eyes still closed. Do you remember the time we put the flock of chickens through that self-important gob Manford's window in the night? The question was followed by a rasping wheeze that turned into a breathy chuckle. For a second, Irwin couldn't believe what he was hearing, and then a smile thawed the startled look on his face, which melted into a raspy laugh of his own. The laugh spread and persisted until Irwin grasped at a stitch in his side and Byford's laugh transformed into a ragged cough. After he regained his composure, Byford's eyes opened and his head turned to look upon Irwin. If it wasn't for you, my friend, I would have never talked to Magwin. She would have never noticed the scrawny Thatcher boy from across town. Irwin chuckled again. You give me too much credit, and yourself too little. She had indeed noticed you, even if your stubborn eyes refused to see it. Though I am glad you finally took my advice. I don't know how much more lovesick Byford I could have taken. A touch of sorrow crossed Byford's weathered face. I do wish you had attended the wedding. It was a blow to not have my best friend witness one of my happiest days. I will mark it as one of my biggest regrets in this long life, said Irwin, his gaze switching to stare into the flickering fire. If I could do anything to change the sickness that has plagued me, I would. He seemed as if he would say more for a moment, and then lapsed again into silence. Byford let the silence go a moment, opened his mouth as if to speak, paused again, and then finally said, I meant not to burden you, Irwin. It was but one day, and it cannot erase the years of friendship. Magwin loved you. The girls love you. I love you, my friend. Irwin brooded a moment longer and replied, I always thought Magwin had questionable taste. Byford smiled. I mean it, Irwin. Your friendship has been one of the biggest gifts of my long life. You have done more for me and my family than any other I have known. I know you feel your sickness has kept you from much, but it has never caused you to fail me, not when it has mattered. There is a quiet strength in those that witness a friend's final moments, and a heroic strength in those that fight evil, even when the odds are not in their favor. Stay tuned next week for part two of His Last Night.